It's great to see everybody here uh, this morning. Beautiful weekend. Uh, thanks for making worship at Alliance part of, uh, I'm sure, uh, like us, busy weekend. It's great to be with um, you. So uh, this week, uh, my daughters began working for Operation Christmas Child at Samaritan's Purse. Now, I'm personally pretty excited about this since I, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of OCC. You see, OCC annually distributes millions of shoe boxes filled with gifts for children around the world, all of that as an entree to introduce them, these children, to the, to the greatest gift, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, I, and I'm so thankful for that particular ministry. And I know that many of you um, here in this service, last service, you serve there. I'm thankful for what, for what you do. Well, my, my daughters uh, were hired to be church relations associates. Their job is to call churches to make sure that they know about Operation Christmas Child and the Decision America Tour, where Franklin is going around to the 50 state capitals and praying for our nation. And, and, and so they started on Tuesday with a little, a little training. Our, our very own Kerry Gregory. Is Kerry in this service today? He, he, he might not be. He rode the, the blood, sweat, and gears yesterday. It's like a hundred miles. Come to think of it, I don't even like Carrie. <laughs> but but Carrie um, taught them how to access uh, the, the database of churches and and how to conduct these these phone calls. And th- then he actually demonstrated. He, he made some phone calls while, while the girls watched. Then. Much to their horror, he gave them the phone and said, now you try it. And they've been doing that the rest of the week. You see, it wouldn't make any sense to be a church relations associate if you never talked to churches. They were trained to call churches, so they call churches. It would make no sense to get the training if you never perform the functions of the job. It make no sense to get a paycheck if you didn't dial the phone. You know, you just kind of drop by once a week uh, on payday to, to pick up the check. No, no, no. After training, you were expected to do the work. Let me be clear about that. Again, it would make no sense to call yourself a church relations associate for OCC if you never talked to churches about OCC. And yet, how often do we do that very thing? We, we, we call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, but we never seem to, to tell others about the Christ that we're following. You see, sometimes I think that we want to enjoy all of the benefits of being Christians and there are lots of really good benefits, forgiveness of sin and joy and God as Father and, and Jesus as Savior and eternal life, all that, but we never seem to get around to the duties, the responsibilities of, of being a Christian. <laughs> you know, we just stop by once a week to pick up the, to pick up the paycheck. We've been in a study of the Gospel of Mark for some time now, and we have been learning about and from um, Jesus. 
Mark doesn't um, begin his gospel like Matthew and, and Luke with the birth of Jesus. No, rather, he, gets, he just gets right to it. After being baptized by John the Baptist and, and after John was arrested, which actually we're going to talk about next week, uh, Jesus began his ministry. And he came and he, and he, and he preached the gospel of God. He, he came saying, the time is, is fulfilled and the kingdom of, of God is at hand. And repent and then believe in the gospel. And then he started doing all kinds of miracles to prove who he was. Uh, the kingdom was dawning. It was, it was right there in their midst. His first miracle in, 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 in this particular gospel, at least, was, was driving out a demon. Right at the outset, Mark wants us to know, actually Jesus wants us to know, Satan's kingdom, (laughs) Satan's days are numbered. Yeah, there's a cosmic battle going on, but Satan will ultimately lose because Jesus came to deal with sin and its destruction, namely demons and disease and and even death Uh, along the way. uh, Jesus is forgiving sinners and calling them to be followers, to, to be with him. No, 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 don't miss that. To be with him. That, after all, is the best part of the gospel. In fact, I want to suggest that is the gospel. God is the gospel. We get to be reconciled to him, to, to, to be with him. Mark has already highlighted the, the 12 that Jesus called to, to be with him, and Peter and Andrew, James and John, and and the rest, and in fact, we read these words, or we read them, and in Mark chapter 3, it says this, and, and he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned, called those whom he himself wanted, and they, and they came to him. So, so, so Jesus called, they, and they came, but, but to what end? And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him, yay, that's the great part, and that he could send them out. Preach, to have authority to cast out the demons. Don't, don't miss that. He called them to himself so that they could be with him, enjoy a relationship with him, so that they could watch him and be trained by him, so, so that he could send them out, in short, to do what he was doing. You see, to be a follower of Christ, yes, indeed, is to be with him, but also to be sent out by him. And, and, and now again, this, this casting demons out is putting the, the, the kingdom of Satan on notice. The kingdom of God is, is now here, and you're out. And, and his healing is certainly to provide relief, but also to prove uh, who he was and to deal with those consequences of sin, and namely disease and, and, and death. Now, if he sent them out to do what he was doing. Chapter 3 tells us he also sent them out to preach. What do you suppose that they were to preach? Well, if they're doing what he's doing, they are to preach what he was preaching. The time is now. It's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and turn from your sins. Believe the gospel, the good news of what God has done for sinners through Jesus. That's what followers of Jesus preach. One of my commentaries says it this way. Everyone likes that Jesus said, come, 
We like that. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and, and I will give you rest. It's great. But, 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 but many forget that same Jesus said, now having come to, to be with me, and, and I'm promising that I will be with you to the very end of the age, having come, now go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. There's work to do. You've come. Now go. This same author um, also suggested that there is a difference between being a disciple um, and being a, that is being a follower and being a learner and being an apostle. And I'm using that in the general sense of the word. An apostle is one who is sent with a message. In that general sense, we are all to be sent ones with the message of our king. His kingdom is here. So here are my questions for you today. Are you a disciple of Jesus? And I suppose that most of us would respond enthusiastically, absolutely, yes. Are you then doing what you are supposed to be doing? Have you joined him in the work, or do you only stop by once a week for the paycheck? Now, I know the analogy breaks down just a little bit. We aren't working to earn anything, but we are called to fulfill certain responsibilities. You see, we continue in Mark chapter 6 today, and, and after being rejected by his own hometown and his own family, uh, Jesus continued his ministry. He left Nazareth and, and those who rejected him, that's interesting, and, and, and was going around to the surrounding villages and, and, and teaching. Don't forget that this, this is the central theme in Mark's gospel. While it actually contains less of Jesus' teaching than the other gospel narratives, Mark makes clear that it, teaching was Jesus' central ministry. He taught. He taught with authority, and he, he proved his words by his miraculous works. But now, it's time for others. Namely, those who have been following, observing, learning, watching, being trained. It's time for them to pick up the phone and dial. To join him in the work. Brings us to our text this morning in Mark chapter um, six, we're going to look at verses 7 to 13 today. Follow along as I read. And Jesus summoned the 12 and began to send them out. That's that word, uh, uh, Greek, uh, the verb form of the word apostle. He sends them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff or no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, don't even put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the... This is shocking. Shake the dust of the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. You see, it is time for His disciples to become apostles. 
You've come to me. Now it's time to go. Called ones become sent ones. Followers become doers. Learners become practitioners. It's time. So let's make our way through the text, and we'll make some appropriate uh, applications along the way following this particular outline. We're going to see this call to the work and, and then instructions for the work and the success in the work. Now, the 12 have been with Jesus for a while now, maybe up, up to a year, maybe even a little longer than a year. How long have you been with Jesus? Well, they had seen him work. They had, they had heard him teach. So he summoned or he called them to himself and began to send them out more literally two by two. This actually became the practice in the early church. Remember Saul and Barnabas and Barnabas and John Mark and, and Paul and Silas. You see, this sending them two by two would provide mutual encouragement and companionship, a, a sharing in the work, a, a, an accountability. And, and it likely had to do with that Old Testament law in, in Deuteronomy 17 and 19 that, that said a testimony is is um, confirmed in the presence of two or three witnesses. So while one is teaching, the other one can say, yeah, that's true, I've seen it. It's true. And so a relevant application for us is to do the work um, together. None of us were ever expected to be an island, to do this incredibly um, challenging work alone. And so to find someone with whom you can intentionally partner who, who, who can go with you and, and pray with you and encourage you and hold you accountable and vice versa. And, and you can do the work together. You can reach out together. You see the strength in numbers, I think, is the idea. Notice Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits. That's interesting for a couple of reasons. First, He gave them authority. It was His authority to give. Don't, don't miss it. It's Mark's purpose to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and He had His own authority to give. He didn't pray to the Father to give them. He gave them His authority because He was God. And second, this authority or power is found over unclean spirits. Compare that with verse 13, and we see unclean spirits are actually demons. Again, in Mark, this has been an important display of the coming of the kingdom of God followers have power over the forces of evil. There is a cosmic battle going on, such as it is, and followers of Jesus have authority or over demons and demonic activity. You see, that's why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the full armor of God. Our ladies are studying about the armor of God in Ephesians 6 in their, in their women's Bible study on Thursday morning and, and Tuesday night, and there's like 130 or 40 of them, like lots of ladies. We're told here, uh, I mean, we're also told by Peter that, uh, that our enemy, like a roaring lion, prowls around looking for someone to devour, and that can seem a little intimidating. Really, he's like a lion. He's going to devour me. No! We have the armor of God. We have the shield of faith by which we can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the very word of God by which we can do battle. So we need not worry. So Peter tells us we resist the devil standing firm. You can do that um, in the faith. 
James tells us rather ominously to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Great, I got to go out and fight against the devil. No, he doesn't leave us to, to do hand to hand combat with the enemy. No, in the next verse, which we often leave off, he says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The best way to defeat the forces of evil is not to focus on the devil, but to focus on our Christ who has already defeated him. We draw near to God, and he, draw near, he draws near to us, and the devil flees. Haven't we seen that in the Gospel of Mark? Jesus shows up. What do the demons do? They bow. They proclaim his lordship. They proclaim him to be the son of God, and then they go hang out with the pigs. They don't want to be where Jesus is. The devil and his mission have been soundly, roundly defeated. We need not worry. All of that brings us to our second point, the, the, the instructions. Now, when Mark says he instructed him, the word is actually much stronger um, uh, in the Greek. Now, I have a little confession to make. Most of you know that I use the New American Standard Bible, and I've used it for a number of years. And, and so last Sunday, a week ago today, was Father's Day. And my wife and kids got me a new Bible. It's a really nice Bible. I mean really nice. Goatskin leather, um, imported European paper. If, I might even let you touch it. It's really, really nice. And it's the ESV. <laughs> Stop. They're, they're trying. And, and I, I might, but I, I got to think about it. Of course, they had to throw in the fact that the very Bible they gave me is the one that John Piper uses, but uh, whatever. <laughs> so here I am studying the text this week, and I've got my New American Standard Bible, and I've got the ESV, and I will now publicly admit, although it will be deleted from the podcast, and that is that the ESV is a really better translation this week. Stop it. <laughs> Bethany Job up there giving me a... All right. It's actually a, a much stronger word in the, in the Greek. I don't know about you, but when I think of the word instructions, I think of something optional, you know, kind of like helpful hints. And everyone knows if you are a real man and you buy something which requires assembly, you do not read the instructions. They are just helpful hints. You do not really need them at least until after you put the thing together and you still have a few parts left. <laughs> I remember when we first moved um, to Boone, we painted our house. My father, my dad uh, went out. He thought he'd help us out. And we went out and bought a Wagner power roller and he assembled it. Smart as my father was, that was a mistake. My Brother was the first to use the roller, also a mistake if you were in his shoes, literally. You see, we're all in the living room. My brother David has the power roller strapped on. It's like a backpack. It's full of paint, I, I don't know, hundreds of gallons. And he, and he begins pushing the button and rolling up and down the wall. And we're all up looking at the wall, and he's pushing the button and, pulling, and pushing the button and rolling, and nothing's happening. Nothing's coming out. And we stand and wait until finally someone looks down. The hose had come out of the power roller, 
And every time my brother was pushing the button, the paint poured out down his leg. By this time, it was literally filling his shoes and puddling around the floor. There was a little chaos, and about that time, my father calmly walked over to the box, pulled out a little hose clamp, and said, oh, I suppose that's what this is for. (laughs) Instructions, who needs them? We, we think of them as helpful hints, but, but the word here has a lot more bite than just helpful hints. It, w- it was used actually in a variety of different ways. First, it was used in the military. If a superior wanted to instruct a subordinate, this word, parangelo, by the way, is the one that was used. When you think, when you think, those of you that anybody might have been in the military, when you think of an officer giving instructions to a subordinate, you don't think of them as helpful hints. Right? Listen, if you don't mind, you know, if you've got some time, would you mind taking that hill? It would be very helpful to our cause. And then, no, we don't even call them instructions. What do we call them? Orders. That's the word that is used here. In the legal world, the, the word was used of a summons. Now, if you get a summons to appear in court, you do not think of that as a helpful hint. You are bound by it. If you do not appear, they will arrest you. The point is this, these were not just suggestions, these were not just helpful hints, these were just not hopeful, helpful things, these were commands, these were orders. Jesus was giving his followers their orders as to what they were to do in the work. And so what were the orders? Well, first he tells them what to take and what not to take in verses 8 and 9. In fact, at first glance, It seems a little over the top, kind of like micromanaging. I mean, he's not sending them to summer camp. Here's their list of things to bring. Bring your Bible, sleeping bag. It's what he does. These are men. You're going to tell them what to pack and what not to pack? I I mean, look at it. Basically, he tells them to travel light. He tells them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. Now, I need to address this. Matthew's parallel account says don't even take a staff, and so a lot of people point that out. This is an error or a contradiction in the Bible. Uh, very simply, simply uh, just like he told them not to take an extra shirt, he probably means uh, don't take an extra staff, or others have suggested that Jesus is saying you can take a walking stick. Everybody had a walking stick, but don't take a rod. You see, a rod was used for descent. Remember thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me? You see, you had the two, but don't take the rod. Whichever, it's easily explained. I'm not bothered by a stick. So take a staff, but, but, but no bread, no bag. That Think of a backpack, since there's not going to be anything in it anyway, right? There's no money, literally, there's no coins in your belt. Just take some sandals. Again, another account says no sandals. Likely, he means don't take an extra pair. You're not going to need it. All accounts agree, don't take Two tunics. Just take one shirt. One's enough. Are you kidding me? I mean, what is this about? Why these detailed orders? Why this micromanagement? It's about dependence. It's about trust. You see, he says, take a walking stick, but don't take a rod for self-defense. I'll take care of you. Don't, Don't take provisions. Don't pack a sandwich. I'll provide 
Don't take money. You're not going to need it. Don't take extra sandals. Don't take extra clothes. I will take care of you. I will provide. The point is this. I am calling you to the work, and I will give you everything that you need for the work. Just like I take care of the birds of the air and the, uh, and the lilies of the field, I will take care of you. No need to worry. I will take what little you have, and I will use it for my kingdom. Here's the point. Don't, don't rely on yourself. Rely on me. Wow, I have to tell you how personally convicting this is. If Jesus said this to these guys in Galilee, I wonder what he would say to the Western church today. Huh. I wonder how much our acquiring stuff has distracted us from the mission. Um, many of you are familiar with the story that takes place in Acts chapter 3. Peter and, and John are on their way to the temple to, to pray, and, and there's, a, there's a lame guy there. Every day his friends bring him to the gate called Beautiful, and he starts begging for, for alms. And, and so Peter and John, they're on their way in, and, 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 and the text reads that Peter fixed his eyes on him. Now stop right there. That, that means something. You, you know what I'm talking about. If, if you're driving along and you come to a stoplight and you stop, you, and there's someone standing there that says homeless or something like that, you don't look at them. You don't make eye contact unless you're going to give them something. You make eye contact, they're going to come over. So you stop at a stoplight and you look straight ahead. Peter fixed his eyes on him. This guy got his hopes up. And Peter says, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we give you. And at this point, this guy's hopes to fall. What? I thought you were going to give me a shekel or something. What are you doing? What do you mean silver or gold I don't have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk. And he did. The story is told that some years later, many years later, uh, an early Catholic theologian, a guy by the name of Thomas Aquinas, um, came, came in to visit with the Pope. And he walks in, and there's the Pope, and he's counting Money, stacks of money, lots of money. And the Pope looks at Thomas Aquinas and says, You see, Thomas, the church can no longer say silver and gold have I none. To which Thomas Aquinas replied, Neither can she say rise and walk. You see, the church, I am fearful, has become way too focused on stuff and not nearly enough on the provisions that he provides to do the work of the kingdom. Don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on what you have. Rely on Christ. Do not be self-reliant. Be Christ-reliant. Further, don't we normally make sure that we have all of the resources that we need before we start doing something that God has called us to do? God says to us, I need you to go, right? That's what he said. I'm sending you out. Go. Do this ministry, that ministry. And, and we begin counting the cost. I mean, can I afford it? Do I have the resources? Do I have the time? I mean, that's pretty demanding. Do I have the skills? Do I have the gifts? What does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? We understand that here Jesus is teaching trust. 
what I call you to do, I will enable you to do. I'll give you all of the resources. I've given you spiritual gifts. I've given you everything that you need to do. Do it. It was Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, who said God's work done God's way will not lack God's supply. So here's my question. Is he calling you to serve in some way? Uh, you've come to him, and now he wants you to, to, to go out. He wants you, as it were, to, to serve. Will you trust him that if he calls you to do something, he will enable you to do it, no matter how meager the resources are? Well, next, Jesus gives them instructions, orders, regarding their visits to various towns. Now, the first thing he says is, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. God, gee, are you kidding me, Jesus? I mean, first you're telling me what to pack. Now you're making my hotel reservations. You're telling me I got to stay there. What does this mean? There was a Middle Eastern hospitality that, that frankly, actually exists to this day that, that, that requires almost that you take in travelers. You, you, you are required to show hospitality to those who are traveling through your area. In fact, early on, this was how traveling preachers of the gospel were taken care of. They, they would show up and count on someone to show hospitality. Again, we see this issue of trust. You don't need a rod, someone will take you in. You don't need bread, someone will feed you. You don't need an extra tunic. The reason you carried an extra tunic was to put two on for cold nights. Don't need it, someone will provide shelter for you. Trust me, Jesus is saying. But if someone takes you in, stay there until you leave. What is, what is that about? Well, you might be tempted to work your way up the social ladder if someone gives you a better offer. If someone offers you their meager accommodations and food and someone wealthier comes along and says, stay with me, and, and, and you're tempted. I mean, who wouldn't want to stay in a feather bed instead of a straw mat? Who wouldn't want steak and potatoes instead of bread and water? Jesus says, don't do that. It's not about you. Likely two ideas here. Don't be thinking of yourself and how you can game the system to gain more. Don't do that. It's why later both Paul and Peter will say of elders, church leaders, they should not be ones who are interested in money. If there's a message the church, the Western church, the United States church needs to hear today. It is this message. Not only that, I think in addition to don't look to gain, game the system, I think he's also saying don't show favoritism. Favoritism or prejudice of all types is here condemned. James describes it this way in James chapter 2. Don't reserve the best seats in your gathering for the wealthy and make the poor sit somewhere else or, or worse, sit at your feet. Don't show favoritism. Accept those who accept you without regard to personal gain. This is important. Uh, this is an incredibly important ministry principle. We care for people. Listen very carefully. We care for people. Care for people regardless of their socioeconomic status. We care for people regardless of what they can do in return. In fact, we care for them regardless of what they can do in return. That's not what it's about. All are sinners in need of a savior. So he says, stay with those who accept you. But 
Verse 11, just like I was rejected at Nazareth, so also you will come to some places and they will not receive you either. They won't accept you. They won't listen to what you have to say. When that happens, when that happens, when you leave, this is incredible. This is shocking. Shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Unbelievable. This was a practice the Jews were quite familiar with. When they were returning to the Holy Land from a Gentile area, they were supposed to shake the dust off their feet lest they contaminate the Holy Land. It was a sign, listen to this, it was a sign of uh, of them, the bad people, being irreligious and under God's judgment. Wow. Can you imagine doing that to fellow Jews? You are irreligious... Because you reject God's Son and you are under His judgment. Jesus said, shake the dust off your feet is a testimony against them. It's a testimony uh, of their coming judgment. They have, they have heard, they have seen, and they have rejected. Shake the dust off your feet. These are incredibly hard words. In fact, in the parallel passages in, in Matthew and Luke, Jesus goes on to say at this juncture, it will be more tolerable in the judgment for the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that particular town. That's significant. When we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of the most reprehensible of sinners, not only those who didn't show hospitality, in fact, they were homosexual rapists, but, but, but Jesus here says th- there is something worse than that, and that is this, hearing and seeing the gospel and rejecting it. It will be no- more tolerable for Sodom than for you. Shake the dust off your feet. Their judgment is righteous and their responsibility. Listen, I find it very interesting today that we don't want We certainly don't want to offend anyone, so we seldom speak of sin and the judgment to come. Here, the followers of Jesus were to give a clear statement that would have shocked, offended the observers, and perhaps driven them to repentance. Brings us to our last point very, very quickly, the success of the work. Verse 12, we see that they went out and preached that people should repent. Uh, we remember uh, this was the message uh, that Jesus was r- preaching, repent, believe the gospel. And notice verse 7 didn't say anything about preaching or, or healing for that matter, only authority over unclean spirits. But here we read, they understood that the very first thing that needed to be done was to preach repentance. Why? Because the message of the kingdom, listen carefully, the message of the kingdom is always paramount. That's ultimately what apostles, that is sent ones, are sent with. They are sent with the message of the king. Think of it this way. If you heal someone but they don't repent and believe the gospel, all you have is a healthy pagan. If you drive out a demon, but they don't repent and believe, all you have is a delivered unbeliever, a free sinner still in bondage to sin. That's why I love OCC, Operation Christmas Child. Yes, they take gifts to to needy children, but they understand that they need something 
more, much more important than a slinky. They need Jesus. And they take it. They take the message of the gospel with them. Because the gospel is paramount. And the works that they did, in verse 13, authenticated the message. Sure, it mercifully made sick people healthy and possessed people free, but healthy and free to repent and believe. Casting out demons. Again, we see that these are unclean spirits. And then here we see that the only place in the Gospels where anointing with oil is mentioned, James 5 tells us if people are sick, they should call for the elders of the church to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. This is the only place that appears, though, in the Gospels. Uh, oil, olive oil then was used medicinally. I do not think that's what they were doing here. Rather, like James chapter 5, it was symbolic of the presence and power of God. The important point is this. They, under the authority of Jesus, they healed people. I think Jesus still has the power and authority to heal today. That brings me to my conclusion. Let me quickly review three or four principles that we can learn from this text. First, Jesus himself identified others in whom he could invest, whom he could train and, and, and disciple and, and, and then send out. We too should identify people in whom we can invest and disciple and train and ultimately send out. You see, our job as fully devoted followers is not only to do the work, but to enlist others to do the work with us and send them out. So, so, the, so the question is, who are you pouring your life into so that they can in turn pour their life into someone else? Second, we should seek to cultivate a simple lifestyle and avoid becoming enamored by the fleeting things of this world. The scripture is full of warnings about the dangers of wealth and accumulating stuff. The bottom line is, is all that stuff becomes a distraction to what is really important. Third, at least the third principle, we should depend on God rather than our own paltry, measly resources. We remember that Paul wrote in Philippians that he had learned to be content in whatever the circumstances, in all circumstances, because God would up, supply his needs according to his riches in glory, not all his wants, all of his needs. And so whether we have much or little, we can be content because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's the context of that verse. We can do that. Whether we have much or little, doesn't matter. Christ will strengthen us for the work. And last, we are reminded to not show partiality, favoritism, prejudice in Christian ministry. Rather, we should treat others equally regardless of social status, ethnic identity, wealth, or influence because there is no male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. We are all one in Christ. So, I simply want to encourage you to, to, to join other followers of Christ, in the, get to work. <laughs> Christianity has enough spectators who enjoy the benefits of belief but never seem to get to the duties of belief. But Jesus himself calls us to himself in order to send us out in his name. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I know that you think, I, I, I don't think I'm ready. 
I haven't had enough training. I'm not prepared. I don't think I have what it takes. Can I for just a moment remind you who Jesus was sending out in Mark chapter 6? <laughs> Up to this point, and actually through much of the rest of the Gospel of Mark, these guys are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. They often ask the most inane questions. Even though it has been granted to them to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, after Jesus explained those mysteries, they often stood there with the lights on, nobody's home, look. Over and over in this gospel, it is really going to ratchet up now. Jesus is going to say things to them like this. Are you so dull? <laughs> Don't you get it? Is your faith so small? My point is this. You do not have to have it all together. You do not have to have it all figured out. All you have to know is that Jesus called you to himself, and you've spent some time with him. Now go tell others what Jesus has done for you in his name, in his authority, and by his power. Do that. And, and not everyone will believe, but some will. Stand for prayer. Father, this was, a, this was a motley crew of disciples. When we read through the gospel narratives, I, I don't think any of us come away impressed. And yet, these are the very guys that you use to change the world upside down. And, and, and the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, these 12. And yet, they're not here anymore. And the, the duty... Uh, of doing the work, which includes preaching the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus, lies squarely on our shoulders. But not only do you call us to the task, you enable us to complete it. And so, Father, I pray right now that you would encourage us by your presence. You've called us. Now help us to be obedient to the call, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.